A character in today's novel tells us that building a snowman is a highly skilled job. You start with a snowball, and then you just have to get down and roll it, and roll it and roll it until it gets bigger and bigger. Today's novel begins at a ball, a costume ball which is the setting of an apparently simple and familiar story of seduction. But one that, as Bridget Brophy's snowball rolls along, expands with an orchestral swell, incorporating problems of desire and pleasure, ageing and agency, and the irreversible tension between perfect, crystalline art and fast-dissolving life. Hello and welcome to Ear Read This, Edinburgh's most powerful book podcast. I'm Ash, your host, and today I'll be talking about The Snowball by Bridget Brophy. This 1964 novel is set over the course of a New Year's costume ball. Amid the general countdown to midnight, there is a private countdown taking place between our two main characters, who have come to the ball dressed as Donna Anna and Don Giovanni from Mozart's opera. As if thrown into a seduction by their choice of costume, the two discuss Mozart, sex and death, all the while concealing their true identities from one another. This artifice is needed firstly for practical reasons. Anna doesn't want Don Giovanni to know her real name, her real identity. Perhaps they know each other or have mutual friends. But there is a deeper reason. For Anna, the Cinderella-like enchantment of the ball is a prerequisite for her taking pleasure. According to a review from the New York Times, Brophy's eye focuses on the costumes and inflections people adopt in order to keep up their pretenses. The art of disguise, public and private, verbal and psychic, therapeutic and destructive, is the subject matter on which she trains her loaded camera. From this vantage point, she develops comic negatives that are deadly, lucid and funny. I absolutely love this book, and I hope I can do it justice today. For a short novel, it is absolutely dense as a diamond, and the podcast will be ranging all over the place in subject matter. We'll talk about Mozart in the 18th century, we'll talk about Freud, we'll talk about camp, we'll talk about octopuses. So without further ado, let me introduce my special guest for today's episode. Kate Levy is the daughter of Bridget Brophy and Michael Levy, and she writes about both her parents and also runs BridgetBrophy.com. I'll be joined again by Kate for tomorrow's episode, where we'll talk more about her work and her mother's life. Uh, but on this snowball part of the podcast, we began by talking about the special end-of-the-year feeling that Brophy infuses into this short novel. The description of it, obviously, it's a, it's a costumed ball of, of wearing, um, wearing historical costume to offset the advance of history. Um, I, I just love that. It, it does speak... So, um, so clearly to that kind of anxiety about time, doesn't it? It, it absolutely does. I mean, it's, it's deliciously evoked um, because there are those aspects such as one you've just quoted, which are, which are sort of rather uncomfortable, but there are also some just some wonderful, um, pure ob observational points uh, about people in a large gathering and their behavior and the, the, um, the premise of the novel is it's a it's a seduction which takes place over the course of New Year's New Year's Eve, and um, even in a reasonably sort of sweaty August, it's astonishing how that New Year's Eve flavour comes across very quickly. And, and I and I I think that's something quite notable is that it doesn't take my mother many sentences to build up the atmosphere. She's extremely good and adept at pointing a few things out, and um, she has a 
a, I, I think, a delightful sense of humour. She, I, I always loved the bit early on where the man who's dressed as Voltaire makes some of the silliest and stupidest comments, <laughs> such as on observing snowflakes on the uh, roof of the sedan chair, that it must be snowing outside, you know, and things like that. And just little things like that tickle me. But she is, she's, she, she works, she works very much on different levels, um, which is a, a terrible platitude for which she'd probably not forgive me. But, you know, you can pick up um, you know, just delightful, rather rather generalised details about certain types of people, or you can go very quickly into the very deep meanings. And in this book, particularly, death is ever present. Um, and and I mean, there are grounds for saying that it is, in as much as it is about a seduction on the one hand, it's about death on the other. Well, platitude or not, Kate is absolutely right to stress that this novel, for all its obsession with appearances, is much more than surface. That it can be enjoyed on a surface level is testament to how seriously the novel takes pleasure. Brophy is a very considerate host, and the ball that she throws caters to all guests, those who want to get seriously stuck into theories about how this ball is a metaphysical ball when you think about it, uh, those who would prefer to hide in the library, and those who want to loiter on the sidelines, soaking up the amusing and decorative atmosphere, enjoying the uncomplicated sugar rush of a peppermint thrown from the gallery above. What seems unfair is that because Bridget Brophy takes pleasure seriously and addresses pleasures both small and large, it has encouraged some guests who sampled only the former to write the book off as superficial. Serious books don't throw sweets at you, the thinking goes, therefore this can't have been a serious book. When it was reissued in 2020, the snowball generated a flurry of discourse across reviews, book blogs, podcasts, articles... Uh, constituting a mini Brophy renaissance. And while it's great to have Brophy talked about, I found a lot of it quite underwhelming. Digging through it now as research for this, the general drift you get from a lot of the uh, material created in 2020 is one of agreement that the book was amusing and had a bit of sparkle, but there was there was a cold, hard nugget at the centre of this snowball. No one seems to know what it was actually about. Podcasts, in particular, let the side down, uh, tended to content themselves with reading the blurb of the book, having a scholarly scamper through Brophy's Wikipedia page, and then wild away the rest of their runtime, gallantly lamenting the fact that nobody takes Brophy seriously. I think particularly in the case of the snowball, that's because people don't take the subject of pleasure very seriously. You still hear the phrase reading for pleasure, but rarely do you get the feeling that people actually are. Books are good for you. They're vegetables to be uh, solemnly chomped, if possible, in front of a deeply impressed public. And the books that aren't vegetables are carbs, comforting stodge to take our mind off things. While comforting ourselves into a stupor is acceptable, there's something indecent about taking real pleasure. As Anna says in this novel about the uh, difficulties of acting on one's desires, nowadays it's all so sordid. If that was true in 1964, it's all the more true now. It's as if, with everything going on in the world, it would be uh, guiltily shameful to take pleasure in reading a novel. Better to read the ones that are frank about how improvingly unpleasurable they're going to be, or else keep yourself balmed and distracted and honourably shoveling down the stodge. This neurosis about 
pleasure is something that Brophy wrote about elsewhere and in The Snowball, and I can't think of a better novel to illustrate the difference between comfort and pleasure than this one, in which Anna, the main character, demonstrates that to act on one's desires can be anything but comfortable. In Mozart the Dramatist, Bridget Brophy addresses the way audiences transformed from going to the opera in quest of pleasure, as she puts it, to feeling the need to find non-artistic reasons to praise works of art for example, for their moral excellence, for the educational or spiritual benefit that could be extracted from the experience. Here is Brophy reacting to a comparison between Mozart and Beethoven that favoured the latter on account of how spiritual he is. The word spiritual represents another attempt to dodge the truth that nothing counts in art except the results. It is judging by a non-artistic criterion. The adulators of Beethoven are on the point of claiming that his art is the greatest because it goes beyond art. In art, however, nothing goes beyond art. This sentiment wasn't shared with some of Brophy's own readers. A review of The Snowball from 1964 in Time magazine reads, Her writing suggests the play of a sleek, recently fed and slightly bored cat. The performance is brilliant, but the reader cannot feel that it is for his benefit. The glossy limbs would be stretched, the back arched, and the bit of string stalked across the expanse of carpet, even if there were no onlookers to watch. There's a little whiff of consumer rights about this, I feel. Uh, maybe a glimmer of modern fandom, where the centrality, the importance of the audience member is on the point of eclipsing the importance of the creator. Uh, the reviewer clearly has a, a well-developed idea of what benefits he's entitled to as a reader, and since they are not immediately forthcoming, is seeking them with growing impatience. The image of a satiated cat is a reminder, painful reminder perhaps, that no one is currently feeding him the right treats or scratching his tummy. But if, as Brophy believed, fiction is immensely valuable but precisely useless, then comparing her writing to a brilliant performance of a well-fed cat is a criticism I'm guessing she could probably live with. Now, this idea of the valuable uselessness of fiction, of art, is essential to understanding the snowball, and we will return to that throughout the podcast. On that 2020 reissue, there was also a lot made of how scandalous this book was. If you read reviews or watch videos on the 2020 reissues, you'll hear again and again how much of a scandal it caused. A scandalous sensation when first published, published, the Guardian reports breathlessly. Uh, But I haven't been able to find any reference to even one remotely scandalised reader of the novel from 1964. The Guardian quotes Iris Murdoch's calling the snowball sheer artistic insolence, which was clearly not meant as a reproof. But apart from that, I haven't been able to find anything. Now, certainly, Brophy was more than capable of scandalising. You can find plenty of scandalised readers of her other book, Mozart the Dramatist. Lots of appalled classical music types who... um, can't believe this person from the world of literature is venturing forth with all these wild ideas about Mozart. Uh, Brophy's also the subject of a Daily Mail article from the 1968 that reads, Why does this woman attract so much wrath? So I'm not trying to take away from her scandalising creds at all. I'm just saying that there doesn't seem to be anything in, in connection to the snowball, and it seems to me a further symptom of a book people don't know what to make of, as if gesturing towards a scandal will suggest they're staying tight-lipped for propriety's sake, and not because of any lack of ideas. Ironically, for a book that suggests a lack of distinction between the subject of a mirror and the mirror's rococo frame, the snowball is a book that has largely been talked around than talked about. But if you'd like to plunge in 
deep with Brophy, then I highly recommend uh, this book, Bridget Brophy, Avant-Garde Writer, Critic and Activist, uh, published in 2020 by Edinburgh University Press. It's a collection of really brilliant essays on Brophy. It'll give you a good sense of the scope of her career, of her writing, and as the title implies, her life outside of writing. It has an article by former uh, Eerie Disc guest, Miles Leeson, who talks about the friendship between Brophy and Murdoch. It has a terrific piece by Alan Perot on the snowball, which I'll refer to later on. And my guest today, Kate, has the last piece in the book where she expresses the wish that the critical neglect of Brophy doesn't itself become a subject, which unfortunately seems to threatened to happen in some of the podcasts that came out when the snowball was reissued to only talk about her critical neglect without engaging in the ideas of Brophy's work would be to neglect her at the top of your voice so with that in mind for the remainder of this podcast I want to engage in the ideas contained within the snowball some of my interpretations and some critical interpretations from elsewhere Uh, this will mean talking about the entire plot so if you haven't read the novel I recommend you do so before listening on And to start us off, I began by asking Kate if she could tell us a little bit about Bridget Brophy and Mozart. Uh, A little bit, yes. Um, Not an enormous amount, because although I adore Mozart, I don't have anything like my mother's in-depth knowledge um, and and sort of penetrating analysis of his, uh, you know, of his uh, opera in particular. Um, She was really very seriously into Mozart opera, and uh, she wrote uh, a book, Mozart, the Dramatist, in, uh, which came out in 1964, which is actually the same year that The Snowball was first, first issued. The Snowball being a novel which um, draws very heavily on Don Giovanni in a certain sense, although it's not necessary to know a huge amount about the opera to enjoy the, the novel. Um, but she was, she was an absolute devotee of Mozart opera. She was very fond of Don Giovanni, although I'm not certain it was her favourite one. Um, the, the, uh, the Mozart the Dramatist book was um, a penetrating study of Mozart's um, state of mind in, in particular in the instance of Don Giovanni. Um, but he, she also looked at several of his other operas and uh, she took, I suppose, what you would call broadly a Freudian, a Freudian view um, about uh, what was in Mozart's mind and um, how his mind worked in terms specifically of his dramatic works. So um, that's, that's really where um, the link comes between this particular opera of Mozart's and this particular novel of Bridget Brophy's. Returning to the ball at the end of the novel, Anna's Don Giovanni is wondering whether or not to put his mask back on. Anna tells him, for those who understand symbolism, it will be instructive to have seen you arrive in it and then come back without it. And if you're wondering whether or not to read up on Mozart before reading The Snowball, I think this is the sort of right sort of attitude to take. It's not a requirement, but it will be instructive. Just knowing the outline of the opera Don Giovanni is instructive. Knowing that it is the story of a seducer who ends up being dragged to hell gives the novel a sense of inevitably melting fragility right from the start. There is a snowball's chance in hell of things ending happily. 
But as Kate says, Mozart knowledge is not required. I first read the novel not knowing the first thing about Don Giovanni, and I loved it. Uh, in fact, it inspired me to go away and read up on Don Giovanni in order to read the novel again. And while I'm clearly not uh, remotely an expert in Mozart, I'll try and give you a sense of what you can get out of the book with Don Giovanni the Opera in mind. Uh, first of all, I think it's useful to separate the self-conscious references to Don Giovanni made by the characters from the uh, references that Brophy includes but the characters aren't explicitly aware of. So let's start with those self-conscious ones. The good news is the most essential part of the opera that you do need to have in your head, Brophy includes. In fact, she includes it quoting herself in the epigraph to the novel, which reads, The most fascinating subject for gossip... Whether, when the opera opens, Don Giovanni has just seduced or has just failed to seduce Donna Anna will no doubt go on being debated for another two centuries. That quote of her own is taken from Mozart the Dramatist. And indeed, it is a subject for gossip at this party, particularly between our two main characters who have come dressed as those two, Don Giovanni and Donna Anna. Some people will immediately find it off-putting that um, the characters at this party have basically trade uh, critical readings of opera. Hermione Lee, for example, the great biographer of Virginia Woolf, described the book as having an irritatingly smug air. But I can't agree with uh, Hermione Lee, living in a kingdom by the sea, because it's not just gossip. To these two characters who have come to the party dressed as Don Anna and Don Giovanni, it is existential. Uh, both are connoisseurs of Mozart. Don Giovanni says the only things he thinks about are Mozart and sex. He asks Anna what she thinks about, and she says Mozart, sex, and death. So for these connoisseurs of Mozart to have figured themselves as Donna Anna and Don Giovanni, there is, of course, a self-conscious charge to their interactions. Imagine going to a fancy dress party dressed as Romeo and finding a Juliet, or going as the Titanic and bumping into an iceberg. And as a consequence, they wonder aloud as to what extent the roles they have assumed dictate how they will act next. And so their readings of Mozart's opera can't be written off as irritatingly smug gossip. They are crucial, because whether or not their characters had sex in the opera begins to take a bearing on whether or not they will in real life. Uh, but they're not the only ones to analyse Mozart's opera. And the hostess wonders that if one listened very attentively to the music of the overture, whether or not it would turn out to be describing what's taking place just before the curtain goes up. And it's impossible not to read this as an invitation to consider the ways in which Brophy might indirectly communicate what's taking place in her own novel. There is certainly a mischievous, uh, punning spirit afloat in the novel. Just to give you one example, this discussion of whether or not Don Giovanni's sexual objective succeeded or failed is followed immediately by the apparently unconnected words, coming, not coming. While Anne wonders what could be read into music, Don Giovanni goes a step further and reads his surroundings as music. Looking up at a chandelier in the ballroom, he says, Each one reminds me of an immensely ornate aria for a Mozart soprano. It's the way each piece of glass just drops into space like a note. Those sort of glass necklaces that are draped from one branch to the next are the runs. This resonates with something that Brophy wrote elsewhere on the intrinsic musicality of language. In a line of verse, the succession of vowel sounds is probably akin to the melody in music. And I have noticed that when someone who, as I do, lacks the talent for reading poetry aloud, tries to clinch, say, a final rhyming couplet and fails, the displeasingness of the failure is remarkably like that of trying to clinch but just missing the final note of a tune. 
I suspect, in fact, that poetry reading can be quite literally off-key. A highbrow flirt, Don Giovanni presses his case by presenting Anna with arguments that their characters did, in fact, have sex as grounds for them having sex themselves. At one point, he hands Anna a paper which reads, It goes without saying that in the famous piece in which Donna Anna designates Don Giovanni to her betrothed as the murderer of her father, she cannot tell Don Ottavio the whole truth. Underneath, he had written, Einstein, Mozart, page 439. Anna handed the paper back to him. In all the authorities you must have consulted, could you only find one to back you up? But what an authority, he said, putting the paper away in the pocket of his 18th century coat. The authority. There may be a special significance to this. Brophy famously said that the two things that interested her the most in the world were sex and the 18th century. In Mozart the Dramatist, she writes about how in the 18th century, despite moving away from religious dogma, the Enlightenment still lacked a coherent theory of evolution, and so couldn't quite dispense with the idea of a creator, or a supreme being sometimes called the Great Architect. At this metaphysical ball, as Don Giovanni calls it, guests are bouncing around like atoms being attracted or repelled by one another. Anna is singled out by one character as being the most attractive person here. With this in mind, it is almost like Don Giovanni is suggesting Einstein not just jokingly as the shorthand for genius that he always is, but as the authority, literally the authority, the pioneering atomic theorist who is the closest thing to a creator of this 18th century metaphysical ball. Eve Orkinloss wrote that the snowball is a sort of prosy musical joke, and those chandeliers aren't the only part of the novel that can be read as music. Characters have a habit of beginning their sentences with O, just the letter O, as if they're about to break into verse or song. Anna discovers, um, to her disgust, that her hostess's nickname for her husband is Tom Tom, and that the husband in turn calls his wife Tom Tom. These appalling nicknames are repeated throughout the novel, so you have this tom-tom, tom-tom refrain, almost as if someone is humming or singing. There is also a character called Boomenbaum, which may be there to uh, provide some percussive underlay. The setting of the book is a ball, just as there is a ball in the finale of Act One of Don Giovanni. In Mozart's opera, this is a meticulous ensemble featuring three orchestras, uh, a minuet, a rustic quadrille, and a waltz playing all at once. The point, I gather, is that this is a, a real stroke of virtuosity, and this is something that the novel seems to imitate. When the story of Anna and Don Giovanni is interrupted by the prose of another character, Ruth's diary, it's almost like a different kind of music taking over, another kind of uh, vocalist stepping in. Mozart put two of his orchestras on stage for this scene, and uh, Brophy also has a band on stage. She describes the musicians as having no characteristics, as if highlighting that they are mechanicals and you're not supposed to be looking at them, any more than you would look at the orchestra players uh, as characters in an opera. We first see Anna in the minstrel's gallery overlooking the ballroom. As she dips in and out of the dancing to observe instead of taking part, her reflections pause proceedings, or at least slow them down. Time is for a moment semi-frozen, as Anna's thoughts are relayed. This is similar to how Bridget Brophy uh, described an aria as marking time in the plot development, making it a still or revolving on its own axis point in a headlong world. Anna's prevarications on whether or not to act remind us that Brophy thought of Mozart's Don Giovanni as a doublet of Shakespeare's Hamlet. When Anne throws peppermints down on her guests, she says confetti, 
a word sung in Mozart's opera during the ball scene. Leporello, Don Giovanni's long-suffering sidekick, says at one point that you cannot square a circle, which I'm convinced must have some bearing on the way that the hostess, Anne, has decorated her cube of a bedroom by ingeniously rounding it off. Perhaps, Anna speculates, because she was a round woman herself. At the end of the novel, we have the reverse as the snowman is built and the big balls of snow are squared off. Beyond these kind of rhyming motifs, there are doublets or rhymes of Don Giovanni's plot. We don't just have a Don Giovanni and a Donna Anna, there is also a younger couple, as there is in Mozart's opera. Here they are called Ruth and Edward, and they have come dressed as Cherubino and Casanova, both of whom offer reflections of Don Giovanni. Cherubino, the sexually promiscuous page from Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro, is sort of like Don Giovanni in larval form. And Casanova was at the latter play's first performance in 1787. In fact, there are rumours that Casanova contributed to the libretto of Don Giovanni, as well as being a famous uh, Don Juan in real life himself. Anna, too, is in some ways more like Don Giovanni than her namesake. I think the two pairs are actually more like four Don Giovannis vying for dominance. As Alan Perot writes of Anna, it is she who must claim her desire, and Don Giovanni, the object of her desire, remains its vehicle and not its driver. When Anna says there's nothing worse than just waiting passively for things to be done, she is referring to sex, but there is a trace of the other thing she thinks about. Instead of waiting around for death, Mozart's Don Giovanni brings hell upon him. In the opera, this comes in the fantastic form of a statue come to life, the statue of Donna Anna's father, whose Don Giovanni causes the death of in the opening scene. In the finale, this statue grips Don Giovanni with deadly coldness. A chorus of devils appear, and Giovanni is consumed in hellfire. Nothing half so dramatic happens to Anna and Don Giovanni in the novel, but if you have some familiarity with the opera, Brophy inflects her ending with enough references the ending of Mozart's opera to give it a quietly hellish feeling. The heat that melts the snowball here is not hell, but the electric fire in Don Giovanni's apartment that hums the A below middle C. In an earlier scene in the novel, we heard a reference to a musical note A being A for Anne, and also that Anna has a cryptogrammatic mind. This second mention of a musical note A can't help but make us wonder if it's A for Anna. Is this Brophy showing subtly how the devils are calling for Anna as they do in the opera for Don Giovanni. I was reminded of this low note made by the electric fire in the snowball when I read Mozart the Dramatist. Brophy talks about the subterranean voice Mozart uses to denote the proximity to hell. In a very entertaining passage, Brophy shows how the famously scatological Mozart used lower-pitched instruments in ways that are both threatening and obscene, sounding the depths of damnation, but also, according to tradition, associating the devil with a foul smell, because Mozart found brass instruments like the trombone useful in approximating more than one form of voice from below. At the end of the novel, a blood-red dawn breaks, and the sunrise is the colour of Don Giovanni's electric fire. The quiet private hell seems to have spread out into the world. There's no um, terrifying statue come to life, like at the end of Mozart's opera, but there is the snowman built by Ruth and Edward. They watch Anna returning to the party, and as she passes, Edward throws a snowball which hits her with a chill, another quiet echo of the ending of Don Giovanni, gripped by the freezing hand of the statue. Anna says early on, um, uh, what a mood. 
yes. uh, what a mood yes. there is. It feels like that kind of novel that's getting at the tang or the or crystallizing a mood. It is it is a mood novel, isn't it? It's, it it's, is. I mean, it's quite interesting that you say that because um, in her introduction to the latest edition, which is uh, Faber's, um, Ellie Williams points to the filmic quality of the snowball. Mm. And uh, she's quite right to do so because um, the narrator gives us occasional insights into what what could be done with a camera at this um, event and what could be done with um, a voiceover, so to speak, you know, uh, an, in, an internal monologue, but it could be made external. And so it, there's a definite filmic quality, which um, lends the book some very nice visual imagery, which I think um, is interesting and entertaining in itself. But yes, um, it is about a mood. It, it's it's about if if you like it, it's very evocative, I think, and you know ca carries you carries you along much as um, Anne is carried along on her descent from the staircase by the sort of throng of her guests, you know, rather against her will and sort of you know off and away. And and if you like the novel and you appreciate Bridget Brophy's writing, I think that th this is a novel which can do that for you. For this next section, I want to talk about Bridget Brophy and camp. When it comes to camp literature, uh, Brophy is a very important author in her own right, in her own novels, and she also wrote an enormous study of Ronald Furbank, one of the foremost uh, figures in camp literature. That book is called Prancing Novelist, and I actually have an episode in the works on a Furbank novel, The Flower Beneath the Foot, which also features a ball, and I wonder how much the character of Ruth writing, taking notes in the snowball is inspired by a figure who does the same thing in The Flower Beneath the Foot. Somewhere, a journalist called Eva Schnurb. The snowball itself oozes the hallmarks of camp, from the 18th century setting to the opulent decoration, the blurring between personality and object, what Alan Perot has described as the cosmos of ornament. Uh, you have gender swapping, Ruth as a page boy, and uh, the general gleeful theatricality. Uh, Susan Sontag, in her famous notes on camp, wrote that camp is the furthest extension in sensibility of the metaphor of life as theatre. Here we have characters dressed as characters. Our leading man is never called anything other than Don Giovanni. You have characters who are only referred to as things like Voltaire and Lady Hamilton. Uh, Gary McMahon has described camp as favouring transparent artifice over discreet guile. Uh, while the snowball flaunts artifice, characters are described as if they are entirely mechanical. He was merely the machine, Brophy writes, of a man that Anna is dancing with, or the operator hidden beneath the rather jerky, bumpy motor which impelled the switchback car on its route, from which he observed, as chance allowed, swathes of landscape, each suddenly cut off and replaced by another. Surrounded by uh, people who appear to be mechanical, perfectly frames the novel's central question of agency, to what extent is the archetypally seduced Anna complicit in her own seduction? In asking this, Brophy is not only interested in normative gender behaviour, but on a broader level, how it relates to the quest for pleasure. Tellingly, when Anna describes the problem of passivity, she uses a metaphor of performance. It's not really even about being a woman, she says. It happens to whichever isn't the active one. I mean, the woman can make the advances, I have done in my time, but then you only put the man in the intolerable position. It's like being a patient and waiting for them to do things to you. Or like being an actor and having nothing to do with your hands. It would be much easier to be asked to do something very difficult with them. 
The camp style is one of extremes. It's defined by extreme exaggeration. Camp is so exaggerated, it turns the world on its head. According to camp, the most attractive women are those with the most masculine qualities and vice versa. Camp is flippant about the serious and serious about fripperies. Entering the snowball then, we enter a world of camp topsy-turviness. Men are shortened by the severe wigs they're wearing in 18th century dress. By contrast, the women are elongated, seeming to wear high heels on their heads. When she dances at the beginning of the novel, Anna ends up with her arms painfully crossed in front of her body, appositely in the gesture of a martyr, sort of like Christ akimbo. The reason Edward throws a snowball at her is because she's such an attractive woman. That's what makes it satisfying, he says. So Anna receives her own version of Don Giovanni's deathly chill precisely because she is attractive. And perhaps Brophy includes a little cryptogrammatic uh, topsy-turviness too. In decorating her cube of a bedroom, Anne has changed the wall's plumness to plumpness, the B swinging down to a P. And I love the way in the 2020 reissue of the book, Ellie Williams describes in the introduction this as the uh, swing of a New Year's Eve pendulum. I think it also could be visualised as musical notation, as notes whose uh, tails are turning round. As it happens again in a discussion about perfect pitch, um, which is followed by the comment perfect bitch. So this time the P is swung back round to a B. Anne, the hostess, and the main character, Anna, are figured as mother and daughter types. They're not actual mother and daughter, but they sort of gesture towards that relationship. And they too might have a bit of cryptogrammatic uh, topsy-turviness going on. If you imagine a double-storied A at the end of Anna, you know, flipping that over looks sort of like an E for Anne. In her essay on camp, Susan Sontag describes the difference between naive and knowing camp. In naive or pure camp, she says, the essential element is seriousness, a seriousness that fails. A work can come close to camp, but not make it because it succeeds. I think the snowball demonstrates this paradoxical relationship camp has with success and failure. Even though Don Giovanni is playing a part, we might even say camping it up, he takes his part seriously. He lays it out to Anna by saying, I'm essentially serious. As I've said, throughout the novel he is referred to only as Don Giovanni. It is only once they have left the party that he finally takes his mask off, and we see that it was simply a man's face. In a wonderful moment, Anna stares at the new half of Don Giovanni's face and says, Perhaps in fancy, perhaps by an illusion of the unsatisfactory light, the part of the face which had been covered seemed to show signs of it. Nothing so pronounced as the shoot pallid look of skin that had emerged from sticking plaster, more like the imprecisely naked look of eyes that normally wore spectacles when the spectacles were removed. And this is how the seriousness of Don Giovanni fails. It is a tender failure. This man is no Don Giovanni, and he is not really another person either. Even after he takes his mask off and they return to the party, he is still referred to only as Don Giovanni. And Anna has her own failure earlier on in the novel, as she tries to steal her and uh, Don Giovanni into her hostess Anne's bedroom. Heading up the stairs, they talk in tones of mutual pleasure. He speaks in a delaying voice. She speaks to calm or arrange the excitement. Against her desire, Anna found that the higher her excitement and hurry, the slower she had to go. She is trying to almost artistically craft a sexual experience for her and her Don Giovanni. But grotesquely, she walks in on her hostess and her husband having sex in their bedroom. This upsets Anna so much that she says, I have overreached myself. I thought I could carry off something that was beyond me. 
and her own artistic failure is cemented by a failure of the wider illusion of the evening. Don Giovanni offers her a 20th century handkerchief that comes out of his 18th century pocket. Anna cries and says, I just can't be perfect. And making oneself perfect is part of the camp tradition. Throughout the work of Furbank, there are characters who are trying to make themselves into works of art. Here, Anna says, I'd like to be attractive not as a person, but as a thing. Not to be made use of, no monetary value. I'd like to be a useless thing. I'd like to be neither warm-blooded nor cold-blooded, but just for there to be no question of blood at all. So this is where we see Brophy's idea of the valuable uselessness of art meeting the camp tradition of being serious about frivolous things and frivolous about serious things. Decoration is by definition frivolous, but the serious side of wanting to be decorative is not wanting to die. The image of a snowball, a momentarily arrested fluid, is just one in a whole scheme of imagery to do with trying and failing to freeze time. The way an artist can, by writing an aria or a poem, but the way that uh, a human being in real life can't. The house is full of putty, cherubs, winged babies. And here's how Brophy describes some of them. In porcelain, they took on the alabaster half-translucence of sugar just touched by moisture. The half-translucence was a hint, like half-nudity. It hinted that something irresistibly desirable was just on the point of being dissolved on the tip of the tongue. The melting effect of porcelain is referenced again when Anna tries to give the suggestion of metal to her face. To metal, she wanted to fuse porcelain. She wanted, in fact, luster, and this, the silver ingredient, was to supply. But she did not want to forfeit the translucence of porcelain, and by choosing a colour which contained blue, she meant to catch the kind of bluish ceramic glaze which embodied, in a tone like shadowed parts of milk, the blue tint of flesh above a vein. In other words, by making up her face, she wants to give it a sense of permanence. No, some people prefer life to perfection, I think, says Anna, and take imperfection as a sign of life, whereas I should like to be complete, even at the risk of being cut off. I rather like the inorganic, or at least the not very highly organic. No doubt I feel safer with them. Alan Perot writes that what Anna seems to be edging towards is not death, but an aesthetic stasis. Seemingly contradictory, complete but cut off is how she imagines herself. Anna also admires a view of her midsection in the mirror at one point, her head and legs cut off, like the broken statue of a torso. All women want to have their heads chopped off, she says. Which could be a snippet of pop psychology. She talks about psychology throughout the novel. Could be a reference to the, to the sort of bluebeard myth. But it also reminds us of that broken statue view she has of herself looking at herself as if she is a ruin. Ruins, the uh, pinnacle of aesthetic stasis, feature prominently in camp works. And Susan Sontag has uh, explained this by saying, it's not a love of the old as such, it's simply that the process of aging or deterioration provides the necessary detachment or arouses a necessary sympathy. The spoiled prettiness of Anna's own ageing face appears to have provided her with just such a level of detachment, an ironic detachment because it's her own face, but detachment nonetheless. And she is most in sympathy with her face, she says, when she makes it up. When it is made up, this ageing face is frozen in time, in aesthetic stasis, which works as a kind of enchantment. For the same reason, not wanting to break the enchantment, she doesn't tell Don Giovanni who she really is. I'm safe so long as I don't tell you. 
So there's the topsy-turviness. Only by considering her face as ruined can she consider it as existing on the deathless fictional plane instead of a mortal one. That way it becomes a work of art, living forever in a perpetual present. Anna's face, Brophy tells us, is addressed to the imagination. I mean, I think another thing that lends it as a sort of slightly special aspect is that during the party, we get Ruth, the young girl Ruth, who's dressed as Carabino, who's a Mozart character, not from Don Giovanni. Um, we, we, we get Ruth and her diary as a sort of, um, not exactly a reprise, you know, but we, 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 get, we get away from the party occasionally where Ruth has stolen away to write her diary. And um, that's got a nice aspect uh, because as a reader, you're not in the party all the time. You can go mm. away with Ruth, Ruth to, um, you know, in, at one point she's in the ladies' powder room sort of thing, you know, and so on. You, you, you know, you get a few moments like that, which are actually rather like a real party. It makes me laugh, though, Ash, because my mother was the least party person in the entire universe. So she, she must have either been once to a party like this or, um, you know, perhaps she just used that incredible resource, her imagination. In an interview with Leslie Dock, Bridget Brophy dismissed any idea that the snowball was consciously based on a real party where she met her husband. The meeting at a New Year's Eve party in the snowball was a case of entirely unconscious autobiography, she says. Because that was a very grand party in fancy dress, and part of the point of the book was that these were two not-rich people in amongst rich people. The party where I, in fact, met my husband was very far from grand and nobody was in fancy dress and so on. But obviously there was an element of autobiography in it. It was entirely unconscious until a man that we both knew remarked on it to me one evening and I said, my God. So I was actually unaware of that. So clearly Brophy wasn't interested in recording autobiographical details. Unlike her character of Ruth, who starts her diary on the spot of her first ball, so as to not falsify any memories. This is intended to be a future relic. Ruth detests Anna on sight. She talks about her in her diary in a way that brings to mind another Anna Kay watched enviously at a ball, Anna Karenina, watched by Kitty in Tolstoy's novel. We've already talked about the way Anna tries to freeze herself following the camp for Bankian urge to make oneself a decoration. As Anna struggles and ultimately fails to do this, Ruth, rather surprisingly, does it for her. I'm keeping a diary of the ball, she says to Anna. Then you've got the evening, Anna said, looking down at Ruth's notebook, in there, pressed like a flower. I suppose so. Ruth added curtly, you're in it. Am I? It gives one a curious feeling. On the face of it, this is a perfectly normal conversation. Anna could be just mildly uncomfortable to know that she's being watched and recorded. But read in the light of knowing Anna's obsession with making art of herself, this little interchange seems very important. To be pressed like a flower or a relic is exactly what she is trying to achieve, to be decorative, to be sealed in that aesthetic stasis. The fact that Ro Ruth does it to her or for her is one of the ways that the book subtly indicates Ruth represents a youthful threat to Anna. From the start of the novel, Anna is resisting her world deteriorating, melting. There are melting flakes on the tarred black roof of the sedan chair that gets wheeled in and Anna watches them melt as she holds her breath in enchantment. The sedan chair itself evoking some kind of uh, enchantment. It reminds us of Cinderella and that time-sensitive spell. There is dissolving imagery throughout the novel. 
a mixture of snow and sucked sweets. The uh, the fresco babies on the wall are like whipped meringue. Anna wears black lace with sequins in, holding her comb. And as she touches it, she hears or feels a tiny spattering of them come tumbling down. This is a confected world that slowly deliquefies. Individual people are like snowflakes, gradually becoming a bank or a drift. Brophy described the book as expressing the disintegration of her main character, Anna's thought. Ruth is watching Anna after Edward throws a snowball at her towards the end of the novel. The woman's head was wholly veiled in frosty air, as though someone had breathed round it and the breath had remained opaque on the still, cold atmosphere of the night, like white scratches engraved on a black sheet of ice. Ruth isn't writing or saying this, but she is observing, and once again she's involved in a kind of freezing of Anna. There is a permanence about this freezing of Anna that Anna hasn't been able to achieve for herself. The younger Ruth, who might have had a worse night, and has certainly had worse sex than Anna, is still associated with greater powers of enchantment, with new life as opposed to ruins. Ruth and Edward post-coitally make the shape of a newly opened flower, in contrast to the uh, dead, pressed flower Anna is compared to in Ruth's diary. Ruth is dressed as Carabino, like I said, who is a page, and uh, after their role in the snow, she is described as a snow page, like a fresh page, not an old one soiled with a, a dead flower cutting. Brophy makes the Anna Karenina resonance explicit later on, but I wonder if she had another Russian Anna in mind too, Empress Anna Ivanova, who was also known as Anne, and in the 18th century, she created an ice palace. There is a painting by Valerie Jacobi in which Empress Anne is seen in her ice house wearing a gold dress, just like the host of Brophy's novel. The real ice palace was decorated lavishly with statues of Cupid, just like Anne's house, and it was the site of a cruel mock wedding that Anna had arranged between two of her subjects, forcing them to sleep on a bridal bed of ice. The young couple of Brophy's novel, Ruth and Edward, are also in for a cold night, snuggling up in the back of a Bentley. There does seem this rec the recurring thing of, of, of parallel art forms. Um, Anna says at one point, oh, if only you could read music in that way and read is italicized. Yes. She's, she's talking about, oh, uh, if we could only read into the overture of, a, of, a, of, of Don Giovanni and, and decipher from it what was actually taking place behind the curtain kind of thing. Yes, that interested me because um, I'd, I'd always believed that that's exactly what overtures did, that they that mm. they gave you the shape of uh, the entire work, but in a sort of condensed and purely instrumental form. And so when I read that, I was quite surprised to realise that I'm obviously just very, very dim on this topic and ought not really to express an opinion at all. Well, I, I thought the same. And I, I also thought, you know, that that sounds a lot like a manifesto for a novel. It, ma it makes me think immediately like, you know, these these wonderful description, wonderful and, and kind of grotesque descriptions of, of frescoes and um, the, uh, the the cherubims and, and the, the decor of this 18th century um, uh, location. It almost feels like, well, are these are these the novel's overture then is, is this is this where we need to be reading what's happening to Anna and, and what, well I what's, think that, what's really I think taking place yeah I think that's that's a, an interesting point I don't know if you know that um there was a televised version of this play um oh, really? I can't remember exactly which date but um possibly 1965 something like that um which I actually remember watching with my mother and um 
she she was very taken with it thought it was very well done it was it, I, you know I was quite young but I did take in bits of it and um, missed the rest of it entirely as you would understand but it was um, you know it was actually attempted you know and successfully um, that that a film you know a short film short television film should be made of it so yeah it's um it's something which really honestly could transfer so easily again now um with you know even perhaps more modern interpretation um but may i just go back to something you said about um the epigraphs of course uh, yes, of yeah. course my mother was a classical scholar which i am not at all which is why i've got um, the plotus written out in English in my copy, <laughs> and uh, it's it's um, it's about if I've understood it correctly, it's about the presence of death even in work, um, and in the act of getting this particular novel onto paper from private letters I have that my mother wrote after she'd finished this this uh, snowball book. She she felt she felt that she'd created um, something which I think she recognised as a masterpiece and she didn't in any way mean that braggingly but as a matter of fact it's it's a book which is um, usually regarded as a sort of apogee of her her talents or her you know her um, creative her creative work um, not by everybody because a lot of people um, very seriously rate her later novel in transit but um i think there's there's a sense in which it was such an effort to get this done and it was such a, a mammoth achievement to beat death ever present even amongst you know work to 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 get it completed that she she felt even more than normal i think that this this was a fantastic thing that she'd she'd lived to create this thing uh, that that that's sort of partly my recollection of the jubilant atmosphere that um, you know sort of engulfed our flat when the book was accepted for publication and so on. And I think from reading her letters, you know, you know, she she was she was very pleased with the book and it expressed a huge amount about her. And I think that may be partly um, where the epigraph comes from. The other epigraph, where she quotes herself, is sheer cheek, and. Uh, <laughs> She two, two thing two things I've, I've I came to realize a little while ago that Mozart quotes one of his arias from um, the Marriage of Figaro in the, one of the last scenes or certainly to, in the last act of Don Giovanni, and so in a certain sense I like to see that my mother was simply copying Mozart, and. Uh, I like. I also know. You know, she was a great follower of Shaw's. She was. She was um, very, very much a, um, an admirer of Shaw. And um, he did say some silly things, but some of them are entertaining. He did say that he often quotes him. He often quoted himself because it added spice to the conversation. And uh, so, <laughs> you know, when I read these, well, you know, when I read these two epigraphs, I think, yeah. I, <laughs> She's she's giving a few nods there to various things. Uh, I'll never I never forget that um, Iris Murdoch called this said said of this book um, that it was sheer artistic insolence, and um, I think it does it 
I don't agree with Iris Murdoch about that, but I do think there's that my mother has a certain swagger from beginning mm. to end in this novel, and it 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 doesn't desert her at any point. You know, she she was very very um, certain of what she was doing right from the epigraphs right to the very last the last um, sort of sentiment, which is. Um, Anna, the uh, the main character, thinking about death as she lets herself into her flat at the end of at the end of the uh, the, the party and the end of the novel. Bridget Brophy's alternative trinity was, according to Peter Parker, Mozart, Ronald Furbank, and Aubrey Beardsley. In a documentary on the latter, Brophy said of Beardsley that she thought he worked as if any attempt to express fully his sexuality might bring on his death. There is something similar at work with Anna. There is a boundlessness to desire, as there is to unwritten ideas, the imagination's infinitude. But to act on the desires, to realise them, is to finish the work of art, and that signals the end of that boundlessness. It is a kind of death. Ruth makes the connection amusingly when she misquotes Hobbes, describing the sex she has just had with Edward, nasty, short and brutish. Jonathan Gibbs touches on the deathliness of sex in the novel, writing, Sex for Anna, it seems, is, like the desire that preceded it, an inconvenient but entirely natural phenomenon, neither to be courted nor avoided, but to be dealt with as and when it occurs. In Mozart's opera, Don Giovanni doesn't wait around for death, he provokes hell to come and get it over with. In Brophy's novel, the man playing Don Giovanni is the vehicle for Anna's desires. On the face of it, he is following his namesake's footsteps, attempting to drive the seduction. And we see his urgency to re realise his desire. Talking about the beauty spot on Anna's chest, he says, Even though I like it, I'd like to take it off. Compare this to Anna's attitude. You're throwing a ball, she says to her hostess. It's too good to throw away. Anna wants to stay in the artistic, artificial present, for it never to turn midnight, or for dawn to never break. To maintain desire, but not realise it. As we have seen, Don Giovanni is not the dominant force in this seduction, Anna is. And so she slows things down, she delays the sense of promise, and uh, this feeling of boundlessness is captured by recurring images of the sea. Rosalind Janner has written that at one point Anna Kay interprets the silken waves of costumes as ocean waves which crashed against the staircase, casting up a sprinkling of foam and laughter. Although there is an obvious point about motion, writes Janner, the comings and goings of a party are often tidal in nature, there is something powerful too in this acknowledgement of a party as a place of collective immersion. The book's gaudy setting is defined by the close rolling press of other people's bodies. Descending into the ocean is an experience textured with sweat, heat, noise, errant limbs and the brush of nearby garments. Anna herself says she would like to be some kind of underwater creature. Ideally, I would live surrounded by very beautiful, highly coloured, fantastic reptiles or fish. Something cold-blooded that had never been in a womb, that had never even been properly hatched. Birds are too nearly like mammals because the eggs are sat on. Cold-blooded creatures wouldn't try to have any sort of relationship with me, wouldn't even recognise me, and so I shouldn't feel sad when they died. They would just turn their bellies up and float to the top of the tank, and I'd throw the corpse in the dustbin and buy a new one. So Anna's impossible position is that to realise the way she would like to live means having to increasingly identify with death. Her fantasies are cold, unmammalian. The thought of being in a womb, the literal cradle of life, is a reminder of her mortality and therefore it has to go. 
The reason the Anna Ivanova imagery really jumped out to me was this insistence on cold. Doing something, that's the way to keep warm, says Edward, and it is doing something that melts Anna's fantastical snowball. Ruth and Edward symbolise new life. They want to be warm. Anna would rather live in a kind of lethal cold, which is impossible as keeping an ice palace in one piece throughout a Russian summer, as the Empress discovered. When Donna Anna and Don Giovanni finally do have sex, there is an instantaneous melting. The rigidity of his look dissolved. Then his head plunged and his face was lost to her. She lost the wish to see it, the memory even that it existed, in the response of her sensations to his labouring body. When it's over, we have a culmination of the upside-down imagery. The throbbing of the lower part of Anna's body is an exact counterpart and antonym to sobs, a shower of pleasure tinged with sadness, instead of the shower of sadness that comes with sobs and yet contains a wry warmth, if only of relief and release. Earlier, I mentioned how Don Giovanni compares chandeliers to an ornate aria, and he does not know how right he is, as uh, later on Anna demonstrates her perfect pitch by setting off the chandelier. She sings notes that makes the chandelier respond, their notes lasting longer than hers. It's a fantastic final flurry of magic in the novel. And the chandelier crystallises several strands of the snowball's imagery. It is glass, permanent in a way that Anna's half-frozen snow world can't hope to be. It is part of the novel's prosy musical joke in representing an aria, and then finally at the end of the novel actually performing music. And it's also connected to all of this sea imagery. Anna's perfect pitch she describes as her slightly fantastic, completely irrelevant gift. She compares it to the evolution of an octopus, which the chandeliers also somewhat resemble, saying, It's like the form of some exotic marine creature that's not only very low on the scale of being, but quite out of the main course of evolution. It's simply there. It's perfect. But why? In the first part of the novel, Don Giovanni is made to sound like a stereotypical ravisher, just as his costume promises. He's a threatening presence. Anne says that I left Anna intentacled in his clutches. In fact, he is also compared to an octopus. He always reminds me of an octopus. He bulges so. But having been given this series of images of comparing Don Giovanni to a, to a tentacled octopus, it is actually Anna who is more strongly visualised as having tentacles when she says she would quite like to wear a chandelier, honouring another camp forefather, Oscar Wilde, who famously said one should either be a work of art or wear a work of art. So she's already compared her talents to a fantastic octopus, and now we're presented with the image of her actually intentacled with the arms of a chandelier. And the repetition and insistence on octopus imagery, as well as the theme of female agency, uh, reminded me of Gerard Cohen Vrineau's article on the figure of the octopussy, which presents the unsettling possibility that female autonomy might make male anatomy redundant. Cohen Vrineau begins his piece with Victor Hugo's Toilers of the Sea, which features an octopus attack which plays out like a terrifying inversion of male ravishment. Following Hugo's book, Cohen Vrineau writes, the cultural frisson generated was so strong that a new social type was born, the wanton woman who manipulates men's desires and extorts his male privilege by instrumentalizing her octopussy. This has many appealing coincidences with themes and Im imagery in the snowball, beyond the chandelier connections I've already gone over. The octopus dwells under sea where Anna would like to live. It makes itself beautiful with a phosphorescent glow, and it changes the colour of its surface. 
It also shoots jets of ink like a writer. It even has an obscene flourish that Mozart would approve of. Although Cohen Vrineau sees the octopuses more as symbolizing the enveloping vagina, Victor Hugo in his novel calls it a mouth anus. This whole cultural moment of vagina panic iterates the castration myth, which Brophy uh, describes as the animating fear of the 18th century. Sigmund Freud, the, another subject of a book by Brophy, famously symbolised this fear of castration through the image of the Medusa's head, writhing with tentacles, turning men to stone. Paradoxically for Freud, it castrated men, but it also made them hard. So there is a confluence here of lots of different systems of imagery in the snowball. Ruins, tentacles, the 18th century, female agency, and embracing death in order to become a work of art. I've inherited from both my parents um, a, a terrible dislike of Virginia Woolf, which, oh. which means that I'm probably not really a good person to say anything about Woolf's writing. But I did, I did reread the party scene in Mrs. Dalloway and try as I might, I can't pick up any swagger or bravado in, in, the, in the wolf. I, I, and, I, and I know I'm biased and a lot of people will find what I'm saying, you know, very deeply antagonistic, but I, I, I do think my mother's writing carries this um, party very, very successfully. It, it, it moves, it moves at the right pace. It moves you at the right pace in the other sense of, you know, moving, moving the reader. And um, it's, it's, it's just extremely, it's extremely professional and proficient, but far more than that. I mean, it really is an absolute tour de force. It just, it just, um, it is some kind of pinnacle of a writer's achievement, I think, to have quite this amount of mastery over what is really quite um, a difficult, um, a, a, a difficult amount of, of um, material to fit in. Bridget Brophy wrote that the snowball was deliberately constructed as a Baroque monumental tomb. Like the flower trapped in Ruth's diary, the snowball entombs Anna, makes her the work of art she'd like to be. But this description of the construction also refers to the novel style. As elsewhere, in reference to the work of Furbank, Brophy wrote about the way Baroque statuaries introduced the bare buttocks of a mourning boy angel among the graven allegorical persons and draperies of a tomb. Like a Baroque tomb, Furbank's style proceeds by contrasts. White marble and black marble, juxtaposed, afford each other a setting or irony. In the midst of high life, we are in the low comedy of flesh and its liability to death. And not all people enjoy this mixing of high and low. John Ruskin described the tale of Don Juan as being the foolishest and most monstrous of conceivable human words and subjects. No such spectacle of the unconscious, of moral degradation of the highest faculty to the lowest purpose can be found in history. Well, it's a good job we didn't live to read The Snowball, where there are Baroque contrasts and reversals of black and white and high and low throughout. The cherubic putty are, upon closer examination, utter little monsters. Worse than earthy, they had rouged buttocks for cheeks, dots blank or malicious for eyes, and either a nose stuck on, an applique nose protruding, not always even centrally, like a carnival beak, or else no nose at all, a nose merely implied by the presence of one hideously large, dark, curling nostril. 
Similarly, Brophy describes Anna's hostess as the least virginal of women to have created for herself a white bedroom. Least virginal, but most bridal. Four times married, and only in this, her fourth married home, had she let her infatuation with white romp to the extreme of covering her whole bedroom with it. Such an excess of satin purity, so blazoned as to be not pure at all, but rioting, sensuous, shameless, like white lilac. Anna herself is a juxtaposition of black and white, black dress and porcelain flesh. The round hostess Anne is buried alive in a tomb of flesh, while Anna doesn't show her bony legs because it is indecent to reveal so much of one's skeleton while one yet lives. Leaving Anne's bedroom, Anna feels sad that the smell of the mint Anne sucked in there would soon shrivel and vanish like a corpse entombed. In the snowball, as in 18th century pottery, there is that slightly obscene hint, that hint of the chamber pot. To say it takes in so much material, it sort of, it seems really strange how short a book it is because it feels like there is a, a, a series of really wide, I was going to use another filmmaking term there, like a really wide angle, but, but you know, these scenes that are, that are huge uh, and not just huge in terms of like characters, but, but in terms of detail of scenery and, and just the amount of, the the images seem sort of like packed like sticks of dynamite yes. it's just so much that's lovely it's so it's 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 really really my kind of book in that sort of dense way i just i, I love that and I, and everything seems in harmony which is again you know plays into not just the the musical uh, motif but also the uh, swaggering against death you know it, it feels like the whole it is throwing a party it's that kind of jubilant it is and i, I mean i think I think what you're pointing up so well is that um, whilst it is obviously uh, text on a page, its operatic quality is is exactly that of a literal opera in as much as you have the dialogue, you have the, you know, the setting, you have the change of the setting and you have the, the mood quickly established mm. and then and then the change of mood and uh, and the denouement, which is um, uh, you know, you know, sort of um, coming coming together of all these, you know, different aspects, and I think to that extent, it it really does exemplify um, what an opera, a good opera like like Don Giovanni, you know, manages to do. So it, it's mm. it's it's well chosen, you know, to 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 swagger along with Don Giovanni's swagger. By the time of the Rococo, wrote Bridget Brophy, to whose utmost development Figaro belongs, there is no telling sacred winged babies from profane. The air is thick with the decorative flights of indistinguishable putti and amoretti. According to the snowball, perversity is the sheer spirit of Rococo, and we see perversity in the faces of the winged Cupid and leering from the devilish mask of Don Giovanni's face as it folds inwards and creases when he grins. I love that detail. Cupid is the presiding spirit of the book, perhaps even the book's god. He is prayed to by the hostess Anne. He's the only god she believes in, we hear. And here is a description of his statue. Seen at close quarters, he was hideous. Partly, of course, it was his age, an infant aged at least 200 years, in the wood, that was to say. Aged two millennia, probably, in the mythological conception. His gold was peeling off in great leaves, as though he had got sunburn, showing the crimson ground beneath. His wing was chipped, 
Worm had visited and then left him. But he was hideous also in the mythological conception, and all the restoration in the world could not have hidden it. A great lump, overfed, overgrown, overactive for his presumptive age, if you judged his age by his chubbiness. He should hardly have been able to crawl. Yet here he was, flying about the world, a precocious monster, and already thinking of nothing except sex. Connected to Cupid is one last little sort of system of imagery I'd like to describe, also to do with ravishment, uh, but presenting a contrast to that ideal octopus-like existence that Anna imagines for herself. The link to Cupid involves Leda, who is referenced throughout the book, and references paintings by Correggio and Da Vinci of Leda and the Swan. And uh, one of her favourite quotations is this from Walter Pater. She is older than the rocks among which she sits, like the vampire. She has been dead many times, and learned the secrets of the grave, and has been a diver in deep seas, and keeps their fallen day about her, and trafficked for strange webs with eastern merchants, and, as leader, was the mother of Helen of Troy, and as St Anne, the mother of Mary. And all this has been to her but as the sound of lyres and flutes, and lives only in the delicacy with which it has moulded the changing lineaments and tinged the eyelids and the hands. Anne has a crystal egg on her mantle that reminds her of Leda with an erotic thrill. And our main character, Anna, is constantly lighting her eye upon an egg as well. A sort of egg. It's actually a guest at the ball who is a fat man who looks like a boiled egg. It's a sort of weird comic subplot that she is always keeping an eye out for this man, who seems in one moment to be the one still point in the moving party. I was vaguely looking, Anna says, for a man shaped like a boiled egg. At least he is from above. I've only seen him from above. I don't know who he is. Another character suggests perhaps he's only visible from above. Perhaps he disappears on ground level. So you've got the guests bouncing around like atoms and Anna looking down on this man who looks like an egg but only from above. And given her insistence that she wanted to be a reptile or a fish or something with no blood at all, she couldn't settle for a bird because they're too similar to mammals, they sit on eggs and keep them warm, it made me think that Anna is looking down upon this egg man almost like she is sitting on him, almost like she is nesting him. In her ideal life, she is a deep sea impossible creature, the jewel-like octopus, ravishing and not ravished. And in this other classical ravishment-connected theme of Zeus and Leda, she is closer to her warm-blooded uh, kin. The amount of eggs that, that proliferate through this very short novel is astonishing. The sedan chair, when it has, uh, has come in, looks like a large egg that has hatched. Don Giovanni, when he takes his mask off, his head looks like an Easter egg, which has a groove at the back from the mask. Uh, there's reference to double-yoked puns. Anna is offered a snack of boiled egg at one point. There is Anne's crystal egg on the wall. All of the Rococo decoration, which uh, typically incorporates shells. There is reference to paintings in which Cherubino, cousin to Cupid, and Cupid stand hatching from Leda's double-yoked egg. And at the end, just before breakfast, the boiled egg man collapses, appears to have died in the middle of the ballroom with um, Ruth's partner Edward dressed as Casanova at his side. On the face of it, this is the death that signals the end of the enchantment, but there does seem to be something much more personal and uh, connected to Anna that has happened as well. All night her eye has lighted on this strange man, noticing intriguing little details about him, such as the fact that despite being completely anonymous, 
he gave off the air of protecting something. There's this extraordinary makeup scene, which is again uh, quite early on. Um, I was just going to ask you what what you sort of made of that scene because I think by the time so many different illusions have been kind of kicked up with all of this this scenery and all of the illusions to to art, to music. We suddenly have a bit where where Anna says, or rather the narrator says, in sympathy, uh, she's most in sympathy with her her face when she was making it up, when she made it up. And you can't help reading that, like, you know, making it up as in putting on makeup or making it up as in, you know, making it up in, like, writing, like, or or like art. Yes. Um, I think think you're absolutely right, because um, you can read the novel almost sort of skimming along with it without perhaps seeing um, how precisely my mother manages to skewer these often multi-layered emotions through seemingly very small things. And you've pointed that out beautifully because there are these different interpretations. And um, I think the scene where Anna is putting on her face. It all it always makes me laugh because I remember my mother putting on her makeup. And as, as a sort of young girl, I was quite fascinated by the whole process. I didn't realize that my mother was probably fascinated by the whole process as well. Um, and there is a sort of mild, a mildish erotic theme between Anne and Anna. And I think this is um this is brought out in the sort of intimacy in Anne's bedroom and the comments that Anna makes about Anne's bedroom and indeed about um, her her marriages and so on. Um, Mm. But that is an absolutely wonderful scene and and it has descriptions in it of old fashioned bits of makeup which are no longer packaged in the same way, but you know exactly what they are, the little discs that slide in a certain way, which is the eyeshadow and that sort of thing. And it it is, it's an absolutely lovely scene. And um, I think it's possibly appropriate here just to mention that Iris Murdoch was um, uh, who was um, a lover or potential lover of my mother's uh, was 10 years older than my mother and I think I'm right in saying that that's the age gap between Anne and Anna. Iris Murdoch comes into this book in many ways and they're not all entirely flattering and I'm fairly sure that in Anna and in Anna's face I recognised um, somebody else my mother knew who was a professional contact and then and then a friend who was not a lover or potential lover at all but somebody that I I recognise and um, I think part of the swagger we've identified was to was to include people and things about people um, in 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 just the way that a, a writer does, you know, it's part and parcel of fiction. I'm not claiming it's anything exceptional. Um, so um, I, I find all those little details of makeup and of, um, well, how can I put it? Anne's rather voluminous um, quantities of gold lame um, to, to, for, her, for her costume and so on. You know, I, I think these are, um, these are, literal observations um, made to, you know, to, to stand for more than just just what they seem to be. And th- th- perhaps I put too much emphasis on this, but um, 
the snowball is a book that's particularly full of things that we had at home not that we lived in an 18th century london house with a gallery and a ballroom but um, objects that we had at home are you know undeniably recognizable to me and i i think uh, you know, I think my mother looked around her at um, her affair with Iris Murdoch and the, the people around her. There were there were very few. She was never a very gregarious person, but uh, you can recognise a few of them and their and their characteristics and and some of the things around our home. You know, and she 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 puts these into the snowball, and nobody would ever suggest that she throws them in. But you know, they are beautifully placed, just like a grace note, or if it's more important than that. Um, you know so the the keynote because there are there are passages about um x and leader and so on you know which are are traceable to to um items in the house and um i think the very the very discussion um between anne and anna is um flirtatious and seductive and cerebral and just sometimes breathtakingly good. Well, I will leave you on that recommendation from Kate. If you haven't already read the novel, please let me know in the, either the comments if you're watching this on YouTube or by email. Uh, if you're a Brophy fan and would like to hear more about her uh, in the future on the podcast. In tomorrow's episode, I'll talk uh, more with Kate about uh, Brophy's life outside of writing, her, her writing elsewhere, her friendship with Iris Murdoch, and Kate's work maintaining and hopefully... Uh, expanding um, her mother's legacy. Huge thank you to Kate for coming on the podcast and a huge thank you to you for listening or watching. Until next time, happy reading.